Verbally Effective with Ina Esco is an interview-style podcast that intersects art, culture, politics, and entertainment with a Memphis focus with producer Sana Marie. Each week, I'm joined by a featured guest with roots in Memphis. Verbally Effective delves into each guest's personal journey to uncover the incredible stories fueling their purpose, the highs and lows of their pursuits, and how through their passion, they are moving the culture forward. Be sure to follow Verbally Effective and Ina Esco on Instagram. Also, download the Verbally Effective podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play Music. Don't forget to check out the website and submit to be a guest at verballyeffective.com. This is Cynthia Daniels, Chief Event Strategist of Cynthia Daniels and & Company, and I'm on Verbally Effective podcast with Ina Esco. We all around Memphis, Tennessee right here. We in the mix as well with DJ B.A., a.k.a. No Genre, a.k.a. Brandon Adams. And we on Verbally Effective Podcast with Miss Ina Esco. Let's go. It's William C. Brack, and I'm verbally effective because I'm a financial expert, podcast host, and I'm civically engaged. Williams D. Brack, also known as Brack, is the Vice President and Community Development Manager for Regions Bank in West Tennessee and Arkansas. After growing up in Greenwood, Mississippi, where poverty ranges between 30 to 40%, this harsh reality motivated Brack to dedicate his life to understanding personal finance, business finance, and wealth creation. Brack co-hosts two podcasts, The Grind Set and Sell or Fail. Brack earned a BA in finance from Morehouse College, he is also a board member and treasurer on the Downtown Memphis Commission, a quasi-governmental agency that serves as the economic, cultural, and governmental core of our city and county. Verbally Effective, your double E, Ina Esco here. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to yet another episode of the Verbally Effective podcast. Today, I got one of my good friends with me who is a finance guru. He's also a podcaster. He sits on a few boards out here in the M-Town. I am talking about William D. Brack. What's up, Brack? How you doing? Ina, I'm, uh, I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> guru might be uh, a little grandiose, but uh, I'm definitely a finance guy. Yes, you. I've been I've been looking forward to being on verbally effective for a year and a half now, and so hey. I'm so I'm so happy to join some of the Memphis talent that's been on this podcast. Yes, well, I am so glad you agreed to come on today. I know you have an amazing story to tell us. I'm sure so many people are interested in you know some of the things they may not know about you with your upbringing and to some of the things that are important to you that we don't know about so i'm glad we are able to get to know mr brack today let's start from the beginning where are you from brack all right so i'm about uh i'm from one point hours south of memphis i was born in a uh, greenwood mississippi in okay. the uh, in the delta yeah. And I came to Memphis by way of uh, Chicago. So the short version is I did elementary in Greenwood, middle school in Chicago, and then high school in Memphis. Wow, that's interesting. So tell me about how all of that came about, uh, the transition to Chicago, then coming back this way. 
Yeah, so, you know, I think for me, growing up in Greenwood, Mississippi, some of the things that are one of the major things that you have to know is that Greenwood is one of the most, well, is the most poverty-stricken place in the entire United States. And so you don't have very much chance of getting out of Greenwood naturally. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, growing up in that environment, having a couple pair of shirts, uh, washing clothes in the tub, you know, and then have to go to class and do schoolwork. There was a lot of uh, despair. There was, there was some anxiety. There was some sadness, you know, and maybe even some self-esteem issues. Gotcha. And so my mother decided she wanted to move to Chicago and gave me the option um, whether I wanted to stay in Greenwood with my grandmother or move to Chicago with her. Okay. And this started a, a very long journey of saying yes to almost everything right in my mind i knew what greenwood was like on the other hand i had no idea what chicago illinois was like i didn't have any image of it i didn't see it on tv even though i had family up there at my at the time when i was 12 you know i was like i don't know this place but yes i want to go okay and so i moved to chicago with my mother and originally, we lived in a, a six-bedroom house with about 24 family members there. Wow. Yeah, my, my great-grandmother had 21 children. Mm. And she was still the matriarch of the family when I got there at 12. Mm. And I was in middle school. But the poverty level didn't change, right? Gotcha. Yeah. Um, and so we had all these families in, and we were still just getting by. And so... At an early age, I had to become independent. I learned how to cook and learned how to clean. And in this family, you can kind of get lost. Every family unit, there's like three or four different family units in there. And each family unit was taking care of its own family unit. Well, my mother had moved out into with my grandfather. Well, I stayed in this house. And so ultimately what, had, what happened was I was able to look out for myself. I had to make decisions early, what I wanted to eat, how to cook it, when to cook it. Um, if I had homework from school, I had to figure out how to get it done myself. There, there wasn't much help. And ultimately, my great-grandmother passed away. And I asked both of my aunts if I could come live with them for the summer. One lived in Texas, and the other lived in Memphis. Mm -hmm. Well, that summer had passed. It was uh, the summer after eighth grade. It had passed. Well, I didn't hear from either one of my aunts. And whatever bad stuff I could call them as a middle schooler, I think I was calling. Uh-oh. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, and then that, that after summer was over, my aunt from Memphis called me and asked me if I wanted to move uh, to Memphis permanently. That was a Sunday. And that was my second yes. By Monday, I was on a Greyhound bus to Memphis. How old were you? I was 12. No, I was 13 at the time. Okay. I was going into my, I was going into my ninth grade year. Wow. And so when you got back to Memphis, what happened, Brock? How, how did things change? Well, the, the first immediate impact in Memphis is uh, I didn't play organized sports growing up. Mm -hmm. And so my first time actually putting on a football helmet was my freshman year in high school. Mm -hmm. And when I was leaving Greenwood, Mississippi, I was throwing the ball um, in the street with one of my neighbors. And he was like, man, you should play quarterback. Mm. 
when I got to Chicago, I played some flag football and they asked me what position I played. I said, I played quarterback. <laughs> and so, so when I got to, when I got to Memphis and I decided I wanted to join the football team and play, they asked me what position I played. I said, quarterback. Mm. Other than watching football, I had no idea what a quarterback did. Mm. So they asked me to throw the ball. I threw it. The coach was like, yeah, you play quarterback. You're the quarterback. <laughs> I'm the quarterback. And and by the fourth or fifth game of the season, I was playing and starting. Wow. Well, you uh, caught on pretty quick, right, <laughs> to that quarterback position. What high school did you go to? I went to the great, illustrious George Washington Carver High School in oh, South Memphis. Carver, yes. Okay, South Memphis. You got a dose of that South Memphis in your life. Okay, that's yeah. a good training ground as well. Yeah, it, it, it is a good training ground. And I met a lot of good people. And a lot of the guys and a lot of people that I met when I first got to Memphis, um, we're still friends now. I just had a birthday party two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And I could sit around and feel the love of, of people that I've been friends with 20 plus years. That's amazing. Um, a, a lot of that doesn't, that doesn't happen for a lot of people. That's but true. all of my friends that I met at Carver, they're all college educated. They're all working and taking care of their families. And I couldn't be prouder of some of the friends um, that I have right now. Amazing. So other than football, Breck, what were you into you know, during your high school years, what were you focused in on? I was focused in on everything. Um, you know, the theme is I was running away from poverty, honestly. And so I played football. I was a starter my freshman year. I ran track. Um, I also played basketball. I was on a freshman team and made varsity my freshman year. If there was a, I was Fox News student of the week. Okay. There was a, a, a Rotary Club opportunity that allowed you to visit um, prep schools and attend prep schools for the summer. I signed up for that. If there was an essay contest, I was doing that. If there was an opportunity to speak, I was doing that. Anything that allowed me to get out of poverty, I was doing that. Um, and I was the president, ultimately, of this New Lights program that the Urban League, the Memphis Urban League, had done in high schools. And that's an important anchor for something later, too. Okay, gotcha. Okay, so I do know that you are a Morehouse graduate. So while you were at Carver deciding on what college that you wanted to attend, how did we come to that decision? And how did that all play out? Well, that's a great question, actually, and uh, an interesting journey. So... I was scheduled and slated to go to Cornell University out of high school. Okay. Um, I was all state in football, all city, all the player of the year for my division. I was also the uh, the valedictorian. What? No, I, I take that back. I was a salutatorian. I graduated number okay. two. Okay. Uh, it's I'm okay to be salutatorian. It's okay. okay. <laughs> uh, so I was a salutatorian and I had to highest ACT score at Carver at the time. Smart, smart, okay. And so I didn't have any intentions to going on anywhere but Cornell. I Why never Cornell? even looked at Why were you focused on Cornell? There was a coach who had the job at Ole Miss. He got the job at Cornell. And from my junior year, he offered me a scholarship. I knew it was Ivy League. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Ivy League gives you a great chance to be successful in life. Mm -hmm. Well, from the eighth grade, uh, all of my teachers and people who cared about me told me one thing. They said, Brack, you're going to be successful in life, 
just don't have any kids while you're young. Mm. And I heard this in eighth grade. I heard it in ninth. I heard it in 10th. I heard it in 11th. Well, my senior year, my girlfriend told me she was pregnant. Mm. Gotcha. And so, and it was probably a couple of weeks before I just had to officially sign where I wanted to go to school. Mm. And so Cornell was out. It was too far. If anything happened, if I needed to get back in town, I was still poor. I couldn't afford to hop on a flight within a day or two notice and, and hit the Memphis. And mm -hmm. so I started visiting uh, SWAC schools, Jackson State, um, Grambling. Um, I even visited UT Martin, Tennessee State. And ultimately, I decided to go to Jackson State University. And the school offered me a full academic and a full football scholarship. Okay. And so while I was down there, you know, football just didn't work out the way I thought. Um, I had an opportunity to play my freshman year. Um, I showed them enough flash of talent for that. Um, but football is an ever-evolving game. Like, you're always competing, and there's guys that are coming from everywhere. Yeah. And we got a recruit from uh, Mississippi State, and the coach called me in and said, hey, Brett, you know, we'd like you to challenge for the third-string spot. Mm -hmm. And that didn't compute in my head. Mm -hmm. Challenge and third-string just don't go together. <laughs> And so immediately, uh, I was looking to leave. Uh, I was like, I need to go somewhere. And I looked at a couple of schools and I was originally slated to go to Miles. I had my bags packed and ready to go. Mm -hmm. Apparently the head coach at Jackson State, Rick Comagy, hadn't heard anything about this at the time. And right before I was scheduled to leave, he called me and said, hey, look, we cannot win a championship without you. Mm. And I was like, word? He was like, yeah, we need you to stay at least for this uh this season okay you know i did not play a single down what as a matter of fact i didn't even put the uniform on that season what all, all i did was practice and so my job was to get our starting defense ready to play the opposing team mm. and you know what we won a championship that year okay so between that season, um, there was a coach who recruited me to come to Lane, um, Rich Friedman. Mm -hmm. He got a job at Morehouse. Mm. And he heard that I was interested in leaving Jackson State. And he called me. And he said, look, I want you to come to Morehouse. I think you're a pretty good quarterback. And we want you. I had never heard of Morehouse. Um, other, than, other than seeing it on Boys in the Hood, uh -huh. I didn't know the, the history of Morehouse. Mm -hmm. Didn't know the importance of it. But what I did know is that Atlanta was a major metropolitan city mm. and it was a lot of fun. Okay. And so he told me more houses in Atlanta. I said, I don't know what this more house is, <laughs> but I definitely want to get to Atlanta. <laughs> right. Wow. And, and so, uh, and so I got the more house, uh, through that and it, man, it was a eye opening experience at Morehouse. I'm sure it was, but you know what, before we get into Morehouse, uh, it sounds like, you know, all of the transition that you were going through was steadily um, developing your leadership skills as well. So um, you get to Morehouse and, and it also, what I'm hearing is you stayed on an HBCU route, like HBCU, HBCU. So now you're at Morehouse. Tell me about how that whole experience was, Brett. Well, you know, the, the immediate thing that stood out to me about Morehouse is you know, I visited Jackson State, I visited Grambling, TSU, and if you see somebody in a suit on those campuses, um, either they were Catholics or they were business majors. Mm -hmm. 
So you get to Morehouse and you see people wearing, you see young men wearing suits just because they like them, mm-hmm. just because they, they look good or they might be a dandy. And I grew up in all black neighborhoods my entire life, went to all black schools my entire life. And I thought black people were either one or two ways. They were a little hood or they were a little bougie. Okay. That was it. No in between. So, no, no in between. So I, I get to Morehouse and I meet young men who are, who are intellectuals. I meet guys who are goth. I meet skaters. I meet preppies. I meet rich black kids. I meet uh, mixed kids, some that are, you know, all different kind of personalities. Um, I meet your future lawyers, your, your politicians. I see the, the range of black people, not just from color, but from intellectual capacity and personality. And it just made me want to strive to be more than just those two types that I saw. Definitely. And your major was finance, correct? So at Jackson State, I was international finance. Okay. Uh, I wanted to see the world. I wanted the exact opposite from this small little bubble of Greenwood. And I was like, there's a big world out there. I don't know how I'm going to see it, but I'm going to do international finance. But uh, at Morehouse, they didn't have international finance. They just had uh, a finance major. Mm-hmm. And so I majored in finance. I had all my core class core classes uh, completed. And a lot of people get taken aback that Morehouse is all male and all black. Mm-hmm. Well, in my view, Spelman is right across the street. Right across the street. Uh, Clark has an intersection. They're right next door to Spelman and Morehouse. We all we all share a library, and on the other side of that library is Morris Brown. Five minutes away is Georgia State. Seven minutes away is Georgia Tech, and then you have an all-girls school, Agnes Scott, Macon State. I mean, from a college perspective, Atlanta is just it. Yeah. Um, if, if you're going to college in the South, Atlanta is one of the best places you can be. Now, in the meantime, you know, I went to Morehouse for football. Mm-hmm. And I thought I was pretty much a shoe-in to be the quarterback. Well, after the summer, and well, after the spring and after the summer, I started my first year at Morehouse, fourth string on the depth chart. Fourth string? Fourth string. That's not what you were expecting. (laughs) It it was humbling. But life has taught me anything is to roll up your sleeves and continue to work. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. And slowly but surely, um, I went from fourth string to third string to second. And my first game ever starting was a, a homecoming game. Oh, really? um, right. So a lot of pressure for a first start. And yeah. we played Albany State. Mm-hmm. And my first game, I threw for three touchdowns, 200, almost 260 yards. And we beat Albany State for the first time in almost 20 years. Oh, wow. What an experience, Brad. I know you thought you was the man, didn't you? Feeling like the man when I walked through. In those last three games that I started, and I, I just went on an absolute rampage and ended the season. My last game, I scored six total touchdowns, 350 some yards. And that movie yeah. moment when you score a game winner and the entire team piles on, on mm-hmm. top of you, I had that moment. And so that, that was pretty special. Unforgettable. Unforgettable. That's a homecoming game, too. <laughs> well, that, that, was, that, was, that was senior day. But Ooh, wait. ultimately, I decided on my career path, and that career path was that I wanted to be a financial advisor. I wanted to learn about the money that I didn't have growing up, mm-hmm. um, find out and discover the tools necessary to grow wealth, 
and teach people um, how to grow their wealth using the tools and things that I would ultimately learn about. Wow. So when you graduated Morehouse, Brad, what happened immediately after you graduated? What was next? What did you have your mindset on at that point? I know you wanted to be in finance, but what actually happened at that point upon graduation? Well, you know, I had to figure out, I wanted to be in business um, and financial planning was going to be my business. And so in order to do business, you need nice clothes. Um, you need suits, you need shirts, you need ties. I couldn't call home and ask for that. And so what I did was uh, in between the seasons, I hustled up on a job at Brooks Brothers. Oh, that was a good, good, good thing to do. <laughs> Strategy, right? And so yes. I, <laughs> got that wardrobe together. Get the wardrobe together because uh, my boy Sam Nelson says, if you look like money, they'll give it to you. Yep. So I hustled up on a job at Brooks Brothers. It took me about three months visiting the manager, talking about working in stuff like that. And we got 50 to 60% discount. And I was able to build my professional wardrobe. Gotcha. Well, one day when I was at work, I overheard some guys talking about this uh, financial company that they were working for. Um, this is the summer before I graduated. And they were talking about this company called uh, Northwestern Mutual. Mm -hmm. And I asked them a few questions about it. Googled it and called them up and told them I wanted an internship. That was about nine o'clock that morning and asked me when I can come in. I was like, hey, I can be there at 1030 if you want. Okay. It was like, uh, 1030 is a little soon. Can you come tomorrow <laughs> at four? You was ready. I, I was ready. Uh, well, you know, once opportunities uh, present themselves to you, you have to take action or else, you know, you get left behind. Definitely. And, and so I did my internship at Northwestern Mutual. It went well enough for me to continue do it, doing it during my last semester of school. And the moment the day school was over, the next day, um, I was working at Northwestern Mutual, learning about the sales and financial planning process and just kind of took off from there. Wow. So at Northwestern Mutual, I'm pretty sure that was kind of like your entry into the corporate side of some of these things that you've been wanting to learn um, to get that foundation right. And let's fast forward to what you're doing now, Brett. You are the vice president and community development manager for Regions Bank for not only West Tennessee, but for Arkansas as well. So tell me about that role and tell me more about the Community Reinvestment Act. Tell me about all of that. Yeah, absolutely. And so my job as vice president and community development manager for West Tennessee in Arkansas is informed by the Community Reinvestment Act. And it's the federal legislation, when I put it simply, is that banks have branches and they accept deposits in a lot of communities. That law says that they should be doing business in that community as well. Mm -hmm. So there's no taking money from South Memphis and only doing business in Germantown. If you're taking deposits from South Memphis, you need to provide services for South Memphis. And so simply put, how I tell people how I describe my job is two ways. One, my job is to identify the community development needs. And the second thing I need to do is respond to those needs using regions finite resources. Nearly every bank has my role. And the way I kind of meet those and respond to those needs is through four ways. 
one, my job is to make sure Regions is loaning, is lending money in the communities. So if you take deposit at South Memphis, we need to serve South Memphis. And particularly, I focus on the low and moderate income community. And that definition shifts um, from city to city to city to city. And in Memphis, the I think the, in, the median income that I work with is 67500 And most people are like, what? It doesn't feel like that. But um, I use a federal uh, website called the FE, FFEIC. And that's what it says it is. And I work with people 80% and below of that or organizations that serve that particular population. Gotcha. And so it's four categories. Loans is one. And it's to make sure that we're lending money um, in low and moderate income communities. Uh, investments are another. So that may look like investing in affordable housing projects or investing in um, private developers or nonprofits that need an equity state. The third is grants to organizations that like to do financial wellness, um, that serve that lower moderate income community through wellness. If the prop, if the issue in the community is um, poverty and affordable housing, the things that the organizations that I donate money to need to address poverty and affordable housing. And then the last thing that I, I do is direct my region's teammates to volunteer and spend time in the communities that we do business in. And so that may look like sitting on boards or that just may look like holding a financial wellness seminar or that may look like um, just volunteering some time with organizations like Habitat for Humanity or the United Way. Busy, busy fellow you. You know what, in Memphis, when you think about Memphis, we have always uh, known Memphis to be if it's not number one in poverty, we're number two. So with that being said, I know you busy in this particular role. <laughs> There's a lot to yeah. do within this particular role, right? Um, what are some of the investment opportunities that you've had that you are most proud of in this particular role, Brack? So uh, I'm new in this role. I just started this in, uh, in December. Oh, okay, so congratulations. Well, thank you. And so I, I've been adjacent to the organizations and the nonprofits, mm -hmm. uh, but now I get an opportunity to do a deep dive. Mm -hmm. Before I did this role, I was a I was a commercial lender. So companies that made 25 million in revenue up to half a billion. My job was to uh, help advise and strategize with them on the best ways to not only structure their company's finances, but structure them in a way that allows them to grow properly. Mm -hmm. And so some of the things that I'm actually working on is addressing the affordable housing issue. And in my worldview, income is the number one way to get people out of poverty. And the way to create that income, in my worldview, people may approach it different, is through small business creation and startup. And so a lot of the initiatives that I'm focused on in particular will address the people's ability to not only start a business, but to also grow their businesses. Mm -hmm. And two, get people in homes. You know, home ownership is a tremendous key to, um, uh, to, to wealth creation and poverty elimination. And so we inked uh, an initiative with Converge Memphis, um, which is an initiative with the uh, Mortgage Bankers Association. And they're focused on allocating money, uh, increasing or decreasing or increasing home ownership in the black community and low income community by 5% over the next five years. 
-hmm. So that will be huge. And in addition to that, we did a we did a, um, a project in the medical district um, to promote housing and jobs in the medical district. And so those are two major initiatives that uh, I've supported uh, or been a part of since I started my role. Awesome. Now, you know, with this pandemic still in play, right? Um, so many people have become unemployed during this pandemic. There have been a lot of opportunities for people uh, that especially are business owners, small business owners to get assistance, uh, whether it's grants, whether it's loans from the government. Um, my particular multimedia company, I was able to get a grant uh, from the state as well. I'm also seeing emails go out now saying, hey, if you got a loan before, you can get you some more money. Let's increase your credit lines. <laughs> I don't need none of that. But what do you have to say about some of these, I guess, opportunities from the government? Um, should people take advantage of those um, that have small businesses or their sites set on starting these companies? What do you think about that? What I think is, is that if you have a proper and legitimate business, you should take advantage of these opportunities. Understand that uh, one of the people or organizations that you never want to get cross with is the federal government and the nope. IRS. They watch you. So, <laughs> so, so if, there, if there's an opportunity, your business is legitimate and you want to do the right thing, by all means, take advantage of all the support and the grants that are out there and the most important thing you need to do is document, document, and document everything, yeah. especially as it pertains to the federal government's money. Yeah. Because even though it's forgivable, um, even though it's a grant, they may change their mind. Mm -hmm. Things shift, and you need a record of everything. Yeah. And, and so one of the things I want to address, you mentioned line of credit and, and, and debt, is people need help understanding that uh, there's a difference between personal debt and business debt. Yes. Right. We'll, we'll use personal debt and credit cards to buy the things we like, um, clothes, shoes, trips, um, things of that nature. But business debt is critical to growth. Mm -hmm. um, it should only be used to drive things that will also create more revenue. Right. Right. You borrow money to purchase some equipment and that equipment will allow you to make more sales. Right. You borrow money to um, buy more inventory. Mm -hmm. That inventory should allow you to make more sales. Right. You, you, you borrow money um, in order to hire people because the person you hire will allow you to make more sales. Mm -hmm. So typically when you're using debt in a business, that debt should allow you to drive more sales and drive more revenue. If it doesn't, it's an awful use of debt. Okay. Wow. Yeah, because we're seeing, you know, a lot of headlines of people misusing these funds that they have been given. And when I start seeing those emails go out about um, increasing your, your line of credit and get more of this loan, I'm like, I hope people have become smarter <laughs> and have really dug into some of these stories that are out there giving you a warning sign to do the right thing. So, yeah. Yeah, that's been very interesting to me. Uh, what's also interesting to me in the finance world, I want to hit on this cryptocurrency. Uh -oh. um, I have friends, I have um, a brother who trades, right? They're definitely into uh, a trading and they deal with cryptocurrency. They deal with uh, shorts, um, 
uh, just the whole dynamic of this whole trading world. Um, what are your thoughts on cryptocurrency? Is this the future? Is the dollar going away for real? Um, should we be getting some of this Bitcoin? What's going on? XRP, tell me what you think. Um, <laughs> Do you trade I'm, I'm, crack? I used to trade. I'm about to get back in. Um, I have a friend who uh, his enthusiasm and passion uh, combined with the price point of XRP has me greatly considering purchasing. Me too. Me too. But in general, I'm no fan. Um, it's so up and down and volatile. Uh, for me, it's just based on a false premise. Mm -hmm. um, you want to buy Bitcoin because it's replacing the dollar. But the only way today to convert, but it's actually backed by the dollar. Wow. And so I'm buying something based on something that's going to be replaced. If you think the dollar is going away, if you love Bitcoin so much, go out and spend it right now. Right? Get your nails done with Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. uh, if it's a currency, right? Get your nails done with Bitcoin. Um, pay your employees in Bitcoin. Buy a car in Bitcoin. At the point where you can actually use your currency, the dollar, I can use all across the United States and across the world. The euro, I can use in Europe. The yuan, I can use in China. If it's a currency, I should be able to purchase things in my day-to-day -day life. And if you tell me Bitcoin will replace the dollar, but also Bitcoin is backed by and can be converted into the dollar, to me, that doesn't make sense. Right. Now, if Bitcoin said it's going to be an additional currency, a currency in addition to the dollar, that starts to make sense. But if you want to invest in Bitcoin because it's replacing the dollar, that's a false premise on why you should uh, buy Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency. Wow, this is so interesting to me, this whole, you know, the dollar may go away and everything is digital currency. Like, is that really true? Like, from what you just told me, I'm still keeping my cash. Cash is king still, right? Well, the dollar is already a digital currency. Okay. Some people... Some people don't use cash at all. Credit card, debit card, um, and bank transfer. You get if you get direct deposit, and you go swipe your card to buy things. Is that not all digital? That's true. Digital. That's true. Right. Uh, every now and again, you need cash uh, to do things, or if you go to certain areas of the country that are still cash dependent, cash is still relevant. Yeah. But the dollar is already uh, digital uh, per se. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and, and so I don't know how a Bitcoin could, could um, replace something that's critically important, not only to the United States economy, but the world. The government would never allow that to happen. What they'll do is co-opt it and call it another form of currency that we can use. Right, right. Because I have noticed that dealing with this cryptocurrency, I've noticed the government step in numerous times and change laws right right as you're making deals it's like wow like they can do that <laughs> yeah, the government can do the government can do whatever they want to do uh, mm -hmm. the goal is to protect the economy if <laughs> cryptocurrency and bitcoin becomes a threat it's the government's imperative to either stop it or figure out a way to legitimize it and bring it into the system right and i'm seeing signs and evidence that that's actually happened so a year ago, two years ago, I would have been 1,000% against uh, cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. 
but major institutions, money centered banks like JP Morgan, yeah. um, organizations like Tesla starting to accept Bitcoin and important people in the financial ecosystem are starting to accept, utilize and understand things like Bitcoin. And that's why the price this time has gone up instead of it going up from hype and people overbuying it. Mm, interesting. Well, look, if you finally make that decision to jump into XRP, you let me, you call me, you let me know, and we're going to do this thing together. Like, I'm, I need some I, guidance. I'll let, I'll let you know. My, my, my friend called me and he was like, man, look, you stupid right now. I you just need to made jump in. He said, no, he didn't say that because he know I don't listen to stuff like that. Okay. He he spoke my love language. He said, man, I just made $22,000 today. See, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> that's what I'm talking about right there. And, Look, and my, not only that, he showed me the statement. See, see, but I, I know, you know, like nothing is promised in, in that game, but you have to do your research and you have to watch it. Like, seriously, if you into it, you got to be into it. Like, it's not anything that you could play about with this because you can lose well, your money. Just like he got 22K, he could lose 22K. Well, I, my number one rule in investing is never invest money you're not willing to lose. Yeah. And the second thing I tell people is if someone uses the G word towards you, you need to run in the opposite direction uh, as fast as possible because nothing is guaranteed. No one can guarantee you any type of return. Every single person has done that. The greatest example being Bernie Madoff, guaranteeing people 8% annually every year, they're all in prison. Yeah. Everybody right. who guaranteed anything stole money. Mm -hmm. Wow. And you know what? They were getting over for forever. They was getting over, but everybody, the government was watching them that whole time, honey. The, the, the whole time if people are getting there's no such thing the market is so volatile things change so quickly information is processed on a daily basis you can't guarantee anything um and you can't depend on guarantees or you'll be greatly 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 disappointed for real seriously wow that's so interesting to me um Breck, let's talk about podcasting because you are out here with two podcasts co-hosting the Grindset Podcast, which is a podcast that you, along with Cynthia Daniels, host um, that focuses on women entrepreneurs and also sell and fail. Let's start with um, Grindset. How did that all come about, Breck? Tell me about it. And why you, why you jump in that podcasting game? Well, you know, first and, first and foremost, I have to give a shout out to uh, Larry Robinson and Kazookian Network. Um, I've seen the growth of podcasting through the eyes of Kazookian and, and what's possible. And I actually met Larry when I was working at a different bank. Mm -hmm. And we were just having a financial conversation about his business. And I gave him some advice that he came to like, respect, and use in his growth. And so he, he says to me, hey, we, we need to do a podcast about finances one day. I don't know when, but when the opportunity comes up, I want you to be a part of something. And so um, I think Epicenter was looking to promote the business community here in Memphis. Mm -hmm. And they partner with uh, Kazukian to do that. And Cynthia Daniels and I, who is a powerhouse here in Memphis with Black Restaurant Week, 
uh, 40 under 40, Urban Elite. I mean, and, and just so many other things. She's sent gone national. And so, you know, in, in this co-hosting agreement, I'm the lucky one to be partnered with <laughs> Cynthia. And, and so I, I get to sit around and, and, and I wrote a vision for myself. I like to spend time with smart people who are doing great things. Mm-hmm. And every two weeks, I get to interview a fantastic Memphis business owner who are just crushing it. Yeah. And then the ones who aren't crushing it have fantastic stories to share and, and lessons that are extremely uh, important for aspiring entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the most important thing after 60 plus episodes and two years in the game at this point is that, you know, Memphis is investable. Memphis is an environment in which we can do really good business in. And all these entrepreneurs that are crushing it here are evidence of that. Yes. Who have been some of your favorite female entrepreneurs from Grindset? I'm going to say that, say this at the risk of alienating uh, <laughs> some of my other guests, but my very first episode with Andrew Soul of uh, the Bubble Bistro. Yes, that's Andrew my Johnson, soul. Oh man. And you're talking about a, a mix of a really good business, mm-hmm. financial savvy and a rabid customer base. Yeah, I mean, she, I mean, and she mentors so many other yes. uh, different business owners as well. Yes. Um, another one is um, uh, Edith Kelly Green and the work that she's done of coming from FedEx and taking that money and getting into the franchise space as well has been a, a powerful, powerful st- uh, story. And then um, Nubian Simmons of the Pink Bakery. Okay. Um, I like people's journey whose businesses are informed off of personal need. Mm-hmm. Uh, she has all these food allergies. And so she started a bakery that allows other people with food allergies to be able to enjoy things like birthdays and mm-hmm. celebrations and, and, and parties. And, it, and it's such a tremendously good business. And oh, by the way, I don't have any allergies and I like the brownies. So, <laughs> they uh, see <laughs> Wow. <laughs> And as you can imagine, through 60 episodes, it's just so many others to name. And I just encourage people, um, if you have Spotify, you can check us out. Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Play, we're on every single platform that you can imagine. And you should check out some of those stories. Definitely. Grind set. And now you and my good friend Sam Benson has started another podcast called Sell or Fail. And I remember talking with you um, at one of the pod box events, you were saying that you were going to do another podcast, but I think you had another name for it. But here we are today with Sell or Fail. Tell me about Sell or Fail podcast. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I co-host Sell or Fail with my good friend Samuel Nelson. He owns Massage on the Go, which is a a national uh, massage business. But most importantly, he's been in sales just like me my entire life. And so I met Sam um, at a networking event. But ultimately, Cynthia and I had Sam on the Grindset podcast. And the chemistry was just so good. We hit it off so much that Larry was listening to the episode. And he was like, look, you and Sam should do a podcast. I don't care what it is. I don't know what the subject matter is, but you and him have great energy together. Mm-hmm. And so Sam and I start working out at the gym every morning at, at 5 a.m. And so we were building chemistry, trying to talk through different podcast subjects. 
And and one, I think the one that I presented at uh, Podbox, which is a great event, and I'm looking forward to Podbox number three. Um, <laughs> it may be virtual. The, the, <laughs> so, so, so the first one was since, since we both came from the hood and, and now we're in business was from uh, from the corner to corporations. Yes, right? yes. I like but, that name. <laughs> I like well, that. I'm, I'm no longer connected to the streets and I wouldn't have been able to find any guests uh, in that. And so I had to think about, you know, everything needs to be personalized. What is it about you? that you've developed over time that you're able to share in the podcast. And for both of us, we've been selling for a long time. Mm -hmm. Since before we started corporate selling, uh, we were buying things from the store, selling them in the school, mm -hmm. in, in the school, selling the kids. Uh, Sam was buying uh, Gucci material. Right. I was selling it. What? When he told me that on the phone, I said, okay, you was boosting. You, what you was selling? Everything. Yeah. <laughs> selling everything um and so for me i started my career off doing some spartan type sales financial planning is 100 percent commission mm. and if people don't buy for you you don't eat right and and so when when you learn in that environment i've done uh, sales that 100 percent commission i've done business to business sales i've done personal sales now i'm in banking and, and i've done all kind of sales opportunities and so it's in so we got together and the ethos is that every single person in this world is in sales. Either you're selling your kids on what you need to eat, what they need to eat. You're selling your spouse on where you want to go uh, to dinner or vacation or things like that. If you're a teacher, you're selling students on why they should be, um, to, why they should take this lesson and, and learn this information. And of course, if you're an entrepreneur, you have to sell or you die or fail. Um, if you're in a corporation and you're in a selling perspective, you need to sell in order to uh, meet your lifestyle and livelihood. And so, you know, A type or B, corporate or entrepreneur, um, we're all in sales. Yes, that is so true. That is so true. So everybody can hear Sell or Fail podcast uh, with you and Sam and also Grind said on all platforms, correct? On, on all platforms, so Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, if you use that. And if you don't use any of those platforms, you can always go on to kazukian.com and locate grind set or sell or fail. Gotcha. You know what, Brack? Um, I wanted to hit on some of the trending topics that are going on right now before we close. Um, one being the death of DMX. Now, I don't know how big of a hip hop fan you are, but um, I remember, uh, you know, just in college listening to DMX and even getting into radio my senior year in college. And I remember we would play party up like every hour on the hour. It was ingrained in my mind. Are you a DMX fan? Of course I'm a DMX fan. And in them early 2000s, you know, I, I was kind of young. And I was rapping DMX hard and didn't understand what it is that he was even saying. Yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> one of the songs is, what do uh, these young ladies want from a gentleman? Yeah, you know, <laughs> what they really want from a hey, I made it you know up I mean? I, Yes, <laughs> major hits, and you know, DMX was the first one who kind of connected the streets to the spirituality piece of it. You're right. right? It, You're right. His prayers. He he normalized praying. Mm -hmm. You you can be hard, uh, but you can also pray. 
And so then Max kind of drove that home for me and a lot of my friends. But besides that, the music was bumping. (laughs) Definitely, definitely. Um, I mean, phenomenal artist. Uh, Like you said, he connected that spirituality piece. And you know what? Like when he prayed, you could, you know how when some people pray, you could just feel it like, oh, he's saying a word to me, like it's really resonating with me. He was just one of those type of individuals and he impacted so many people. So we definitely lost a legend with DMX. I thought you were a DMX fan. Um, Something else trending in the news with this vaccine, right? Everybody's talking about the vaccine. Um, Johnson and Johnson, they've come out to say that they're pausing on the distribution because it's causing blood clots. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I've been sitting and waiting. I haven't taken a vaccine. Um, I just have some apprehension uh, with them. Like, I don't, I just feel like, I don't feel like it's been out on trial long enough. I'm, and everybody mm-hmm. that's my friends that have been taking it, I'm like, I'm just sitting watching you see how you feel today. And so now, they grow an extra dude, arm or extra head or something. Okay, yeah. Look, I'm so for real. And so now we got Johnson and Johnson pulling back because Six women, now specifically women, have uh, been affected with blood clotting um, in the uh, lungs. And I'm like, specifically women? Like, why is it targeting women? Okay, I'm scared. What do you think about this whole issue with Johnson & Johnson vaccine? And what are your thoughts on the vaccination, Brett? Well, look, as far as Johnson & Johnson concerned, my personal ethos is one life lost is too many. And, and so if you need to pause Johnson & Johnson to figure out what's going on, because the purpose of the vaccine is to save lives, uh, let's do that. Now, I have friends who argue that, um, you know, six lives out of 6.8 million um, is insignificant, but not to those six families, no. um, not, not to the six people um, that have been affected. And I'm a capitalist. Um, mixed with a form of activism. And so if the vaccines are, are safe and it allows people to be able to take care of those, their families, I'm for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't taken a vaccine yet. Um, I'm far down the line. I'm young. I'm healthy. Um, there are people who are older. There are people with pre-existing conditions. There are people um, adjacent to people who are older and with pre-existing conditions. And I'm far, far, far down the line. But whatever is necessary for people to be able to take care of them, their families, I'm definitely for people doing. Definitely, because a lot of people that have had reservations, they have since taken the vaccine and seem to be doing fine. Um, but this news was rather alarming to me <laughs> with Johnson well, and Johnson. Wow. If you're, if you're a woman and you're hearing that this uh, vaccine is giving women, in particular, blood clots, I'd be scared too. Yes. Yes. Well, you know what, Brad, I have really enjoyed you today on the Verbally Effective Podcast. We've learned so much about this Greenwood, Mississippi native today. And, you know, you keep crushing it out here in this financial world. Um, I know you also sit as a board member and treasurer with the Downtown Memphis Commission. Tell me about that before we go. Oh, yeah. So the the Downtown Memphis Commission, um, they have two goals. One is to increase um, the business activity in downtown and and thriving businesses and to increase the population of downtown. Um, We're the economic engine and the strategy organization over downtown to make sure that 
one, uh, to make sure that downtown is for everybody. You know, most downtowns in every city are kind of the, the epicenter of activity. And, and Memphis is no different. And so you have apartment complexes and things coming up. You have small businesses moving, hotels are, are, are thriving. And so the downtown Memphis Commission Board, which I am the uh, new treasurer of as of, of, as of last month, um, strategizes on the best way to serve that. And so uh, in, in addition, we have separate kind of sister organizations that, that do pilots that focuses on uh, pilots for the downtown area. We have an organization that focuses on mobility for the downtown area. And most importantly, especially in this COVID time, we have an organization that's uh, focused on providing grants to small businesses and other organizations in the downtown area, which is the expanded area is between the parkways. And the smaller area is between the uh, South City, not, yeah, South City, um, up to Mud Island. Wow. Okay. So, you know what, uh, with your experience being on the board now, um, you know, one would think you would have a lot of insight on, especially being within a pandemic, you know, some of the openings, uh, how close are we getting back to normal in the downtown Memphis area? And if you look at social media, you would think a pandemic didn't been here and gone, <laughs> like things look like they are <laughs> wide open, right? But I, I'm sure there are still restrictions. Um, are these some of the things that you all talk about within the board as well? We do. Um, definitely safety is the, the number one key. Um, how can we get back to business? Because there, there are people who own and operate these businesses. There are people who work at these businesses who have families to provide for. And so safety is the number one issue. How do we make sure we safely get downtown running back again? And so the vaccines, like we mentioned earlier, play a big part of it. Um, figuring out ways to support these businesses in the meantime with grant and services and opportunities. And as well as communicating with the public that things are safe, that businesses in downtown have the protocols in place where you can come out and enjoy yourself and have a good time. Look, I was just out um, two weekends ago celebrating my birthday. Um, I was also out on Bill Street last weekend and I felt safer than ever. Bill Street back open. Bill Street is back open for those who want to know. <laughs> You're probably like, Bill Street been back open, girl. Where you been? <laughs> because I, I, I didn't want to say that, but Bill, Bill Street is definitely back open. But downtown is such a big part of... Um, a lot of people's entertainment in the city of Memphis, a lot of us, you know, we, we miss going downtown and going to some of the businesses and build streets and things of that nature. So I'm glad to know that you gave me the 411 brag. <laughs> people have cabin fever and are ready to get out and, and have some safe fun um, where possible. I was on uh, Riverside Drive as well, and it was packed. The weather's turning, it's nice out, and yeah. people want to go out and not only enjoy downtown Memphis, but every part of Memphis from uh, from Shelby Farms down to Midtown. So True, uh, true. Like you said, we suffering from cabin fever. We ready to go. Didn't that weather right, too? Yes. 
Thanks for that insight, Brack. And thank you so much for being my guest today on the Verbally Effective Podcast. I wish you nothing but the best in your endeavors. And you keep on grinding it out. And don't forget to let me know about, you know, this opportunity with some financial markets. If you dive in, give me a call, okay? I'll definitely give you a call. And I'm looking forward to seeing uh, Verbally Effective at South by Southwest, too. Look, I am too. I am too. Thank you so much, Brack. You are amazing. I enjoyed your story. And thank you once again for joining the Verbally Effective Podcast today. Thank you, Ina. Take care.